Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. Welcome again and welcome to Moira. Hello, Dave. Hello, everyone. So this is episode 41 of Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep. And the theme for this month's podcast is when we eat. Trying to get our heads around, is there an impact on what time of the day we eat and how that relates both to sleep and longer term health outcomes. And as you'll hear, we interview Dr. Gerda Pott, who's one of the recognised experts in this area. So what's been going on for you, Moira? Well, nothing much, actually. <laughs> I'm sleeping a lot, a bit of a winter hibernation, trying to get really good quality sleep and trying to look after myself. I don't have any, any goss in the, in, or anything exciting to tell. What about you in the, in the sleep world? Yeah, I don't hibernate to quite the same extent <laughs> that you do. That's not my, my usual pattern. Uh, one of the themes that's come up a bit lately is sharing a bed with someone and how does that impact on sleep? And the media picked up on that lately and I did a piece for the Sleep Health Foundation. Yes, thank you for that. Triple, on very cool Triple J. Yeah, I felt a bit, you know, like I was sort of in, not enemy territory is not right, but just out of <laughs> my comfort zone. Out of your depth. In, uh, triple, did you have your card- cardigan on or did you wear a leather jacket? Yeah, I was decidedly uncool. <laughs> did not quite rocking it on the cool factor. <laughs> but it was a really good interview and um, I heard some good feedback actually from a number of people about you know, just talking through that issue about how you go actually trying to sleep in the same bed yeah. with someone else. Yeah, well, it's a com- it's it's not uncommon, is it? In our world, it's not uncommon. It's something that people talk about quite a bit, uh, and not even necessarily with a romantic partner, but even say with like sleepovers and things like that. School camp, people say I could just I can't sleep with people in the room, let alone in the bed. So yeah, that's something we'll we'll explore. Another episode. Yeah, I reckon a good topic for us to explore. And it is a trigger sometimes for people to come and see us in consultation. Mm-hmm. It's that they can manage sleep themselves if it's just them. But once yeah. there's someone else, that's yes. the straw that breaks the camel's back that's, and yeah, drives right. them to, to come and seek help. Yeah, it's a bit of a topic because I, I did something in April. We can put a link to that. So the theme for this month's podcast is when to eat. And it's actually got a fancy name. It's called chrononutrition. We've had many years in the dietary world of it's all been about what we eat, counting calories, the food pyramid, proteins, carbohydrates, paleo diet, pritikin diet. But some of those fad diets are starting to incorporate these concepts around timing. Yeah. So a number of patients now talk to us about the five and two diet, fast for five, eat for two. You know, that's got that concept of other way around, isn't it? Surely they fast for, they don't fast for five. <laughs> yeah, thank you. You see how familiar I am with, the, with these concepts? Yeah. And in a research sense, there's definitely been research coming out in the basic science literature about time-restricted eating. So one of the most well-known authors in this area has been Sachin Panda, publishing data on if you restrict eating to within, say, an eight-hour window, there's reduced rates of obesity, at least in animal models, not yet really demonstrated in human models. And so we thought we'd try and explore what are healthy timing or a healthy consideration around the timing of meals. So to do that, we interviewed Dr. Gerda Pott. And Dr. Pott's a nutritional scientist and lecturer working at Lewis Bolk Institute in the Netherlands and King's College in London. So thanks very much for helping us out on the podcast, Gerda. Well, thank you, David, for inviting me. No problem. So what actually is chrononutrition? So chrononutrition is a, a term that started in 1986 by a, a French researcher 
And it's about studying not only what we eat, but also when we eat and how this affects our health. So it's about studying the impact of the timing of eating. And when you think of time, uh, I, I include three elements there. So there's clock time, frequency, and irregularity. It's also very closely related to research on sleep. And both sleep and dietary intake have a, have the biological clock as underlying mechanism. So how did you get interested in this area of chrononutrition? The reason I got interested in this topic is, is that I have a grandmother who reached the age of 97 in very good health. And I really wanted to figure out what her secret was. So I noticed when I spent time with her, she had a very regular meal pattern. So she had breakfast every day at the same time, lunch at the same time, dinner at the same time. And I really wondered whether this could be, this could be the secret to her reaching a healthy uh, age. So I started investigating this and I actually found out that not many nutritionists uh, have looked at this topic uh, in detail. So is there any evidence in the literature that when we eat impacts on health risk? There is, and the evidence is increasing. Uh, so far, most of the evidence has been from observational studies. So if you think about, for example, studies in shift workers, studies have observed that they, they have an increased risk of developing chronic diseases such as cancer, cardiovascular disease, and metabolic syndrome. The few studies that have been published show that regular meals uh, could be important for our health. But of course, observational studies do not uh, infer causality, and we need cl uh, randomized clinical trials to confirm that. And in that area, few studies have been published. Uh, they looked mainly at the effect of regular meal frequency. Uh, they were performed on a small scale. So uh, there was a study done in nine healthy lean women. And another study uh, which was comparable in 10 healthy obese women. And these were randomized crossover dietary intervention studies. And they investigated the impact of irregular meal frequency pattern uh, on a number of health outcomes, including uh, circulating lipids, insulin, glucose, and so on. And the main findings of both these studies was that an irregular eating frequency seems to negatively impact fasting lipids and postprandial insulin profiles, confirming the importance of new patterns in influencing carbohydrate and lipid metabolism, in addition to the amount and, of course, composition of what people eat. Yeah, and how do you think that some of the negative metabolic effects of chrononutrition or timing of food uh, might be mediated? I think this is due, uh, this comes down to our internal body clock. So many nutritional uh, metabolic pro processes actually also have a circadian rhythm. So think about, for example, appetite, but also metabolism of glucose and cholesterol. And when you uh, eat at the wrong time for your internal block, this can have a negative impact on your health. Yeah, we certainly see lots of other negative impacts on health in both shift workers and people that eat irregularly. What about data on the irregularity of meals? I think for your internal body clock, it's also important to have periods of non-consumption. So for our body clock to work at its best, we, uh, it also needs time of rest in certain organs. So then not eating all the time actually benefits your internal body clock. Yeah, and there's that data out of Sachin Panda's lab on time-restricted eating. Has any of that been borne out in either work you've done or some of the literature you've reviewed? It's actually very closely related because both uh, Sachin Panda and I say that 
the body needs a period of non-consumption. So in uh, their work, in the time-restricted feeding work, it's done to a more extreme, so uh, restricting uh, to certain hours. I think if you stick to three main meals, that allows your body to have enough time of non-consumption to allow your body clock to work at its best. So what is it about that period of non-consumption that you think allows both the body clock to work best and seems to be healthier from a metabolic and nutritional point of view? So biologically speaking, our biological clock is not exactly 24 hours, but the body clock needs some cues to reset to 24 hours again. So one main element of that is light, of course, but the other one is dietary intake. So if you restrict your dietary intake to specific periods of time, so not eating all the time, that actually helps to reset that clock. Yeah, so we often talk about light or in the sleep field, we think light's the main zeitgeber or synchronising signal for the circadian rhythm. And I think we underplay the effect that meals have, and I think that's a bit of a blind spot for us often in the field. Yes, I think it's a combination. So I, I do think light is the main sidekeeper, but I think dietary intake is another important one. People that I see or if I look at media articles about sleep or if people are trying to improve their sleep, they may be careful about light, but really meals isn't on the radar for them. So are there any intervention studies advising us or giving people sort of guidance in terms of if they follow sort of a regular meal pattern that it does make any difference to their metabolism? specifically refer to sleep, I think that's the study I would really like to do next. We, in, in the group I work with at King's College, we actually did uh, the reverse. So we looked at people who have chronic sleep deprivation, so who sleep less than six hours a day. And we wanted to know whether we could make them sleep longer and how that impacted their dietary intake. So we did a feasibility study and uh, we gave them advice on how to improve uh, and enhance their sleep duration. And we actually managed to let people sleep about 30 minutes longer. And we found that their uh, dietary intake somewhat changed and their carbohydrate intake, for example, decreased. We know from studies that when people are sleep deprived, they choose different foods. So they eat more carbohydrates and more fats. And uh, yeah, you can think of ways to reverse that and use dietary patterns to change their sleep again. How are you proposing to do that? You know, if you had unlimited budget and, you know, someone just said, just design the the study you want to do, how would you look at that? Probably prefer a randomized controlled trial where one group would be allowed to define their own regular meal patterns so that actually suits them uh, and their biological clock. And I'm proposed to let them eat three regular meals a day and they should be healthy, of course, and use fresh and unprocessed foods. And then I would have a control group where I would just let them carry on uh, as they were and then compare the impact of sleep uh, and also on their other metabolic health outcomes. For example, uh, if they are, for example, blood pressure or glucose levels or cholesterol levels. And then you reviewed the literature and then published that great paper in 2016. Based on that, what have you been working on lately to try and move the field forward? So I now do more practice-based research. So at the moment, uh, we've just published a pilot study on a lifestyle intervention program, including nutrition and including the message that people should consume three main meals a day. And this was in uh, type 2 diabetes patients. And we found that people uh, who followed this lifestyle intervention program for six months 
uh, could reduce their medication use and improve their markers of type 2 diabetes. And that's your pilot data. Where does it go from there? So we're actually doing a main study now, and we're trying to include 1,900 type 2 diabetic patients and then evaluate the effects after six months, but also uh, more long-term because the program is meant to make a, a real lifestyle intervention which can actually be prolonged. So we also want to look further uh, after uh, 18 months and also 24 months. There's been you know, increasing work, and you wrote that lovely review in 2016 about the impact of timing of feeding and the impact on sort of health, in, including sleep. Are we ready for prime time? Is this a message we're ready to roll out in a public health sense, or, or are there still missing pieces? I think it's a very good question. I think we're almost there, but I think there are, as you say, a few missing pieces. And I think Kona Nutrition should be part of a bigger picture. So if you uh, were to perform a lifestyle intervention study, uh, this is one element, uh, but it should be considered as part of the bigger picture. There are actually countries out there like Sweden that have incorporated Kona Nutrition in their dietary recommendations. But I think we need a little bit more research before we're there. And there are existing stakeholders. You know, there's a whole industry that tells us what we eat is the key to to health. If you try to roll out these messages about when we eat being important, have you gone with that in a public health sense? Are there barriers or any resistance to that message? Yeah, also a very good question. I think if you think about public health, in the end, we all want to improve people's health. So if this is one uh, element we can use, one modifiable risk factor, I think we should definitely try and investigate it. And what I see is, that generally the message has been received well because people can easily grasp this concept and it refers to our common sense. However, when you think about, for example, industry, we're trying to sell us more uh, snacks and uh, perhaps maybe for them uh, it's not so beneficial. And if people are looking to apply the principles of chrononutrition, sort of based on what you know already from work that you've done and other groups have done, what do you suggest as a suitable way forward? I think eat regularly, so not too much variation in time of day and from day to day. Eat, of course, healthily, so fresh and unprocessed foods, and allow your body to have a sufficient time of non-consumption. So stick to the three main meals. Uh, and as an example, I have my, my grandmother. She had a very strict meal routine. And with that, she actually uh, reached a really uh, high age. She became a 97 and was in generally good health just before she passed away. And I think it's, this was one of her secrets, uh, how she did it. It's an interesting observation. So I do some work with the health spa, and I have fortunate enough to be able to go to the health spa periodically and spend some time there. And one of the things mm-hmm. that happens at the health spa is life's very regimented. Breakfast at 8 a.m., lunch at 1 p.m., dinner at 6 p.m. It's the same mm-hmm. every single day. And it does seem yeah. to be important in that routine. Yes, exactly. And I think that our grandmothers or grandparents knew actually quite well how this worked. And even if you go further back in history, I think it was already Hippocrates who talked about the importance of eating regularly. Great. Thanks very much, Greta. Yeah, thank you. Very interesting interview. Thanks, Dave. That was that is so important that we're starting to talk about this issue because it's it has come up um, in terms of timing of um, medication, timing of medication I've heard spoken about at conferences. And 
obviously there's more and more focus now on timing of food. Tell me your overall summary or your take-home thoughts, I guess, after that really interesting interview. Yeah, so I think the work Gerda Pott's been doing, as well as other groups around the world, yeah, I'm now convinced that when we eat is at least as important as what we eat. I reckon oh, absolutely. with the passage of time, we may actually find it's more important yeah. than what we eat. And that's, you know, how much would that shake up the whole diet nutrition industry? Yeah. But, you know, and in my personal practice, yeah, I'm going to have to be asking people, what time do you eat? Thinking about meal intake and food as one of those important cues or synchronizers of the circadian mm-hmm. system and something that's going to impact on the circadian system. We haven't really, we, we're focusing in the sleep history often on, on the sleep. I, you know, tell me about your sleep, into bed, out of bed, tell me what happens. But we very, very rarely, well, I certainly will start doing, yeah, start inc- incorporating timing of food rather than just even what they're eating, but the timing of it as well. Yeah, because that's really is pretty clear from some of the work that Dr. Pott talked about is that food intake is an important synchronizer of the circadian system. And if I'm trying to manage people's circadian system and give them advice about light, yeah, I should be giving them advice about meal timing and that as well. The other stuff I really found fascinating is, and I don't think it's been fully explored yet, is the time-restricted eating data. Some of the data from, again, from Sachin Panda's group, but some other groups around the world showing that time-restricted eating, that is restricting the amount of time per 24 hours that you're eating, even to as harshly as a six-hour window, has significant impacts on obesity, metabolic health. Um, And so, yeah, what's that about? And how's that mediated? And how does that interact with sleep and the circadian system? So have you followed that quite closely, Sachin Panda's work? Yeah, he's he's a little bit of a pop star in this yeah. area, so you tend to hear him a bit. It actually pops up a lot on sports performance yes, podcasts. Of course, yeah. You know how to be a better you. Yeah. <laughs> you know those type of things. Be more awesome by time restricted eating <laughs> type of things. Not that I'm really into that, but yeah. you know I'm sort of following this whole sort of how does when we eat fit in with sleep and health. That's where he pops up a bit mm. because food and sleep and health. That's why we started doing series of trying to think about food and, and sleep and some podcast episodes on it, it has much more, people often ask me much more around the, about, not the timing of their food, definitely is what should I, shouldn't I eat to help me sleep better? And that's something we don't really have very good answers to in terms, I think the shift work people are doing fantastic work around yeah, the timing of nighttime eating and what to, what's best for that. But in general, the person who's just generally not sleeping well, they I don't think I don't think I've got a good body of evidence to talk to them about the actual food or drinks, etc., or supplements during the day. Great. So that's what we're going to cover in the next episode, Moira. So we'll be able to get to some of those questions. And so that's going to complement what we've talked about in this episode of thinking about when we eat, how to think about food in terms of how it relates to other behaviours, activity and sleep and wake. So if you're looking for more information on the topic of when we should eat and chrononutrition, there's a number of Dr. Potts research articles, and I really liked a review article on chrononutrition that she wrote in 2016, and I'll put the link to that in the show notes. There's some of the work of Dr. Sachin Panda's lab that I'll also link to. Um, They've got an online site that's called My Circadian Clock. It's a project where you can download an app, um, put in all this data, and then the app will tell you when to do a whole lot of things. 
because I'm interested, I downloaded the app and started to put all this data in, but it got pretty tedious pretty quickly. I had to put in every single thing I was eating, drinking, and when. But the promise is if you do that, then it starts to actually tell you when you should be doing things and what you should be doing to optimise health. The yeah. pay, payback for them is they collect heaps of data about yes. what people are doing in the in the Are wild. they upfront about that? Are they, yeah. yeah, they're yeah. reasonably upfront about that, and it was certainly a lot of data to put in. But something that's interesting if you're interested in that area. Sounds good. So, Moira, what's your clinical tip of the month? Well, my clinical tip would be based on all the discussions and your interview. I think the tip would be that all of us clinicians, oh, and researchers, really. But, but certainly taking a, a clinical history of someone who's presenting, talking about any sleeping difficulties, that you ask about the timing of their food. That's that's the simple, that's the tip. Not just do you eat, yeah. when do you eat. Yeah, and not what is it. And I'm very focused, I've always been focused much more on sort of alcohol, caffeine. Yeah, true. Uh, meal size, timing, not timing the meal, but just, you know, are you eating regularly? But yeah, so that's, that's the, the hot tip. What about your pick of the month, Dave? Oh, well, this is right back at you, Moira. So you <laughs> sent me this. This was the IKEA Sleep Podcast. Oh, yeah. Where yes. you go to sleep listening to somebody. I did. Reading out <laughs> the names of things. <laughs> in Queen <quilt>. Swedish. <laughs> did it work? Kornvalmo. <laughs> Pillow. Are you feeling sleepy yet? <laughs> no, it just makes Kistelal. me laugh. Queen mattress pad. <laughs> Hydrasund, Queen Pocket Sprung Mattress. So there you go. That's, that's your that, that's your pick of the month. That is my with pick all of the your month. reading of journals and <laughs> that's hilarious. So thank you for that tip, Moira. <laughs> what about for you? Well, my pick of the month is actually a podcast that's been done by Harriet Hiscock, professor, I believe now, Professor Harriet Hiscock and her team at the. Murdoch Children's Research Institute in, here in Melbourne, uh, very generously have put together a series of podcasts very much focused on children's sleep and parenting issues and those sorts of things, which is so fabulous, so overdue. And they've done it. For, they've made it freely available. So we'll put a link to that in our show notes. That's my, my pick of the month. So what's coming up, Dave, in future episodes? So as we talked about earlier, so the next episode is going to be about what to eat. So hopefully it's going to inform you and I that blind spot for us when people say, well, what should I eat to yeah. sleep well? Yeah, Hopefully Great. I better answer them after yes. the next episode. And working up a couple of other episodes, so a research update about some of the latest from the Sleep 2019 meeting and some other research, uh-huh. cannabinoids and sleep and their interaction with sleep and alcohol and sleep, so some other things that we're working up. Great. Good. Have we got our roving reporter, um, Simon Frankel, back for our for the update from the US meeting? Absolutely. Yay. So look forward to having <laughs> Simon back in a couple of episodes for that research update. So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you've got other suggestions for episodes, email us at podcast at sleephub.com.au. Uh, we're on Twitter now, so we've got a Twitter handle, at podcast sleep. Send us a tweet or follow that to hear about the latest episodes. Fantastic. So thanks for listening and stay tuned for next episode. 
This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.